Investor Master of the Arts and Sports Administration Revenue Above Replacement Podcast. I'm Bryce Clinton. We have an incredible show today where Adam interviews Brian Stedman. Brian is the Executive Vice President of Strategy and Development at Major League Baseball. In this role, Brian oversees the newly formed Strategy and Development Department of Major League Baseball, which works closely with teams, internal MLB departments, and partners to establish strategic plans that impact crucial areas of the business, including international, media, marketing, and ticketing. Prior to his role with Major League Baseball, Brian worked for Worldwide Wrestling Entertainment, where he was most recently the Executive Vice President of Global Strategy. While at WWE, Brian oversaw corporate strategy and data analytics. Brian also has experience expanding strategy and operations at the international level, which culminated in the WWE Network expanding to nearly 200 countries. Brian brings a wealth of, of knowledge from his roles in the sports industry, and we're extremely thankful that, that he took the time to, to speak with Adam. So we hope you all enjoy this wide-ranging interview that Adam has with Brian Stephan. Administration Revenue Above Replacement Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Grossman. With us today is the uh, Brian Stedman, who is the Executive Vice President of Strategy and Development at Major League Baseball. Brian, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Adam. Thank you very much. Good to see you today. Yeah, good to see you as well. Um, before we jump into your current role, we always ask all of our guests to kind of give us uh, their career to date, how you got into the sports business, and how you got into your current position. Sure. Absolutely. Happy to. Well, you know, the, the career started uh, way back a long time ago doing startups in Boston uh, when everybody was doing startups in Boston. <laughs> and uh, I actually started out my career as a software engineer um, after graduating from Hamilton College and spent a few years in that role and ended up at a startup that was spun out of MIT's Media Lab and quickly realized that while I was good at computer science, I was not MIT Media Lab quality at computer science. So after a few years of that, made a pivot into the professional services side of the business. And at that point, I transitioned into, you know, my colleagues were really out of Sloan and out of the business school there. And while I didn't really have insight into everything that, you know, an MBA and, um, you know, marketing executives or strategy or finance executives really meant, I understood that that's where my next interest was. Um, so after a few years working in that area, I went on to you know, business school at Tuck, um, spent a couple of fantastic years up in Hanover and wanted to apply all of that learning into my next career move and took a role at LEK Consulting in Boston. And spent about four years at LEK, which is a phenomenal experience. Got to work in numerous industries, numerous functions. I'd say I probably majored in private equity. Um, also got experience across you know tons of different industries at the time. A lot of airlines, uh, consumer products, retail, IT, leveraging my background in software. And reached that inflection point that I think a lot of consultants often do when they're sort of early in their tenure as a manager and decided I wanted to take an off-ramp and go into industry. And it was right about that time, one of my colleagues um, had been doing some work from his consulting firm at a large software company who was looking to stand up and uh, formalize a corporate strategy organization. 
So I took that opportunity to go in-house, um, started up a customer insight function along with another partner from that consulting firm. Eventually that grew into being a corporate strategy organization. And after doing that for a few years, uh, I kind of came to the realization I wanted to work for a brand that was recognizable, a brand that meant something to me, a brand that I had affinity with. And well, listen, the, the, the software company, phenomenal place to work, um, you know, coming out of startups and consulting and um, some of these behind the scenes roles, wanted to take that brand experience. And it was right about then, <clears throat> interestingly, that, you know, I literally that day got an email from WWE. Um, and the opportunity from WWE was to come on and be their head of uh, strategy and operations for the international division. So I showed it to my wife. And my wife said, well, I guess we're moving to Connecticut if this thing happens. And that thing happened. So we, we packed up, left Boston, moved down to Connecticut and uh, spent seven and a half years at WWE. And, you know, that's that's a long time at one place. It's particularly a long time for people who are in strategy function. Um, but for me, it was basically a new job every year, year and a half. Um, started out as a head of strategy and operations, as I said, in the international division, grew that out, uh, structured the operations along with a lot of uh, talented executives there, had the opportunity to move over and head up corporate strategy at WWE, where I spent probably the last three to four years there, um, worked with some phenomenal people, um, got to do a lot of big things that I'm sure we'll cover today in the media space and the digital space and analytics space. And then um, I would say about a year ago, um, MLB called it the opportunity, saying that they wanted to do something uh, similar and even larger, where they wanted to formalize their first strategy and development organization. Um, so I had always been a baseball guy at heart. It's always been my first sport, my first love out of all sports. And uh, the opportunity was phenomenal. So went through and had a lot of great conversations with the team at MLB, who are now my coworkers. And at this point, we're about eight or nine months into the, the process of really building out our new strategy and development organization. So, so that's about the last 20, 25 years in a nutshell there, Adam. Hopefully that hits the highlights. Yeah, I think yeah, it does. Um, I think what I would, a uh, couple of questions that came out of that discussion, the first one uh, that we typically ask, because this is a consistent theme we have with our guests, is you, you came from outside the sports industry and then decided to move your way into the sports industry. What are the skills, you know, you mentioned obviously your background at LEK and, and obviously your background in uh, business school, but what are the skills that you found that were most helpful as you were making your transition from outside to inside the sports industry? Yeah, and you know, I probably add one, uh, one other stop along the way to that, Adam, which is the time that I spent doing startups right out of the gate. And, you know, I think you learn a little bit of something that you take with you from every environment you're in. And for me, you know, working in the startup environment was my first exposure into sleepless nights and really long work and rolling your sleeves up as high as they would go to get into a problem, get things done. And to be honest, I think that that's probably the, the predominant attribute I've carried throughout my career whether it's in strategy, whether it's in consulting, whether it's in anything else, you know, just a, an ability to, to roll up the sleeves and get things done. Um, consulting was a phenomenal stop along the way. And I think that, you know, there once you go into a consulting firm, you're really in the crucible of an environment that, you know, puts you under tremendous pressure to really demonstrate in the heart and your empirical skills, your analytical capabilities, your um, client skills, your ability to operate under stress. 
And ultimately, your ability to take any really odd nebulous problem and add enough structure to where you can get some people to work on it with you. And, you know, I think that was, for me, the biggest takeaway from consulting that I've been able to apply in a lot of different roles. Um, when I went to the software company, whether it was WWE, whether it's an MLB, you know, starting up new strategy functions requires, you know, you to operate without much of a pathway. And, you know, having that is a good background, bringing that skill set in really helped me, um, you know, be able, be able to make some progress in those areas. And that seems to be another theme that you um, are, another theme of yours is, it, it's a good thing you brought up the startups. From your perspective, do you think you were attracted to roles that had that kind of startup component, even within larger organizations? Or do you think that's just... I guess, for lack of a term, that it was kind of lucky that it worked out that way. And have you translated that to, you know, from an entrepreneurship to more of an entrepreneurship role at these current positions? Yeah, that's that that's a great question. I actually think about that a lot. And I, I, I tell people um, what, who I speak with about career paths and advice. I always say I've never had an ability to create an accurate five-year plan. I've never been able to wind the clock back five years and be at a consulting firm and say, in five years, I'll be at WWE or be there and say, five years, I'll be at MLB. Um, you know, I think that I have always been drawn to those types of roles. Um, I feel like I've always really had the ability and desire to collaborate with a lot of people around me and to be part of a team that's really going to drive value in an organization. And I think that we found that early in the startup environment. And honestly, it's something that works for me and I've been able to really seek out and land and find as we've gone through the rest of my career. So, you know, there's definitely some some attributes there that I carry with me. And, um, yeah, it's really it really has helped me, again, feel comfortable in nebulous situations, um, you know, bring a team around me who can really add some value and, you know, leverage the power of the smart people that are around you. And then, you know, you talk about uh, obviously a nebulous situation. It does sound like your first role at the WWE, there was a lot to do. And it wasn't, you know, obviously necessarily 100% clear, which was part of the excitement of being at the role. So can you talk about what it was like when you first started at the WWE, particularly from the context of um, the international component, but also some of the digital um, strategy work? Sure. I would say that. that was a very transformative time and it was just a very important period, I would say in sports and media in general. And that was right around 2013, I believe that joined WWE. And as we all know, at that point, that was really, you know, the first inning, no pun pun intended about the digital transformation and how media is consumed. So from an organizational standpoint, when I came into the international role, um, international as a division had largely been a media licensing division at um, WWE. It was very responsible for you know taking the in-ring product, finding television partners, um, monetizing the you know television in in the different markets we had, and behind that, um, the, essentially the organization would tour behind that. They do live events in Europe, they do live events in UK, Japan, and and that was really the model. Um, when I came on board, it was part of a sort of a management transition where there was a mandate to stand this up as a proper international operating division that was really brand first and really focused on growing the affinity for WWE, for the sport, for the brand. And behind that, um, creating a market environment that you could monetize via all the vehicles that we had. 
So that was really, you know, it was really a transformative time in the organization to do that because it was really a mindset shift from right, just essentially a monetization opportunity into really a greenfield branding opportunity. And it was really, I feel like it was very successful, both from, you know, a, a fan acquisition standpoint. You see it in some of the numbers now, if you follow WWE much at all, a billion social followers, 70% of their digital consumption happens outside the U.S. But there's a lot of there there. Um, and additionally, that that dovetailed in with the second part of your question around some of the transformation of the organization itself, because that was also the time when we were launching the DTC network. And for folks who are less familiar with that, essentially, WWE had always innovated in the content space. And a long time ago, back in some point in the 80s, um, Vince McMahon first started up the pay-per-view model and took WrestleMania and, you know, stood up the pay-per-view model. If you want to view this, call your cable provider and do a transaction. It'll stream to your television. Stream was not invented then, but it'll come to your television. And uh, you can watch it from the comfort of your own home. Fantastic model. There came a point around 2010, 2012, when I think the executive team looked at that and said, okay, it's time to cannibalize this and time to generation skip and do the next big thing. And that's when, um, you know, our, our management at the time said, okay, we're going to launch the DTC product. And WWE Network launched in, I believe, February 2014. Um, you know, I had the opportunity and I had the pleasure of helping to implement that globally because I was still in the international division at the time and roll that out to about 200 countries worldwide. And, you know, that was kind of the capstone, a lot of the work we did in the international division from building the brand behind um, all the strategic thinking and operation that we had and then being able to monetize it via the network. It was really a transformational time. Uh, so a lot going on back in that period. Yeah, and I think actually, uh, one of the things we want to talk about is metrics, but I think it builds into this question I was going to ask. You mentioned about cannibalization, right, and changing the media model from a pay-per-view to a direct-to-consumer model. What, what, you know, obviously there is a potential, you know, like you said, potential challenge, and, you know, you have a known revenue stream and moving to something that's more unknown, particularly in the context of international expansion. So what were the... the you know, at least at a high level metrics or thought process, or how did you guys, uh, how did you at the WWE think about that in the context of launching the direct-to-consumer product? Sure. You know, if, um, if you can credit WWE with anything, it's that there often is a willingness to take big bets and get the whole company behind that bet. And, you know, again, I feel that's, that's a, a big credit to Vince McMahon and his leadership style. And we, we absolutely did that at that point. Um, you know, pay-per-view is a very, very healthy business for us. And when we looked out into the future, we had a few strategic options that we were considering at this period. And some of them involved some other acquisitions or did we want to do a network? Did we want to license this to television? And, you know, I think um, management read the tea leaves and said this, this digital transformation has the power to be um, to unlock a lot of value in a lot of different ways. Honestly, nobody knew what it was at that point, right? So the interesting part of your question is, you know, kind of what metrics did you look at and how did that evolve? Um, you know, they truly evolved over time. I think the first metrics that we looked at, you know, was obviously in some ways revenue because we're, you know, cannibalizing an existing healthy business and healthy is sort of that melting ice cube where we'd lose a few percentage points a year, but, you know, the executive team had enough foresight to jump off of that and onto the next iceberg, which obviously had a hockey stick shape to it. Um, so I would say early on, it was really revenue, it was really subscribers. 
And it was probably some of the basic metrics that you would look at. How quickly are we adding subscribers? How much are they paying? Um, are we offsetting the costs? You know, what's the margin? Some of the traditional you know, business metrics. And then over time, you could see the level of sophistication continue to grow. And a lot of them, we started focusing on churn. We started focusing on customer acquisition costs. We started developing more sophisticated marketing mix models to really understand where our advertising spend was going and what return it was providing for us. Um, so I would say over time, you know, we really leaned into that. And we really leaned into it, not just when we saw the number of subscribers go up, but when we started to correlate engagement, viewership, time spent with economics and ultimately with brand health, right? I think that that's one thing that WWE had a great lesson for everybody on is the power of the brand at the center of everything and how you should be looking at your content and your distribution vehicles as enablers of that brand. And this was no different. So as time went on, I would say, engagement on the platform started to be a predominant metric that we will continue to look at. And eventually that would drive our um, content creation and content distribution strategy. It also drove some of the offers that we would provide to subscribers. Um, it would obviously drive a lot of the retention tactics that we had. It went in a lot to how did we think about when to stage pay-per-views and actually work back into the core product of the content itself. Um, so I know there's a lot there, but uh, you asked a complex question. It's a big, complex product, and you know, we, we had a lot of things we looked at over time. Well, that, and that doesn't actually build in my next question. Um, again, I, we do want to get back to kind of metrics, not just for the uh, WWE Network or the DTC product, but just potentially more net metrics as you were continuing to grow the business internationally. But one question that we do and one thing we do talk about is, you know, you mentioned the executive team and talking to the executive team. So how do you know? How, how how was communication, particularly around a complex product, a complex um, rollout strategy, and a complex you know use of metrics? How do you communicate that information to an executive team that maybe maybe has a lot of familiarity, maybe as much familiarity as you do with the metrics? Yeah, yeah, that's that's always um, that that is the big question, and that's one of the secrets to the role of being in strategy. So, but in all honesty, I think we benefited from having an executive team that was very um, quantitative, quantitatively focused, fully got the numbers, fully understood, dove in um, by all means, dove in, and ultimately um, adopted the mentality that you know they would let. And they would let the decisions on the operating side be heavily influenced by what the numbers said. They had a quantitative bent to begin with. And I think that that really helped. Now, beyond that, I think really the key to this is to have a common vernacular and common language across the organization that ties back to the analytics, ties back to what is important and to really orient the organization around that. Because, you know, with the plethora of data we had, with the plethora of data any organization has in these digital times, you know, there's so many analyses that can be performed. It's really important for the leadership um, to be able to step back and say, what do we really care about? How do we get the narrative focused on this? And how do we really inculcate that into our decision making? Um, and essentially, that's like any other good analysis that you do. It really helps separate the noise from what's critical and, you know, works into a narrative that you can communicate to executives, right? Um, showing that, hey, we have 100 metrics we looked at, three matter, this is what the three mean, do this, and have the narrative and tell what that means. 
ultimately, I think that that's really the critical skill set. When you look at somebody who is a very strong head of analytics in those roles and you find an organization where they want to elevate the role of an analytics group, that's really the key skill set. Somebody that has the ability to get in, wade through the data, work with the analytics team to understand everything that's going on, and then turn and translate it to the executive group and to the board. That that's really the differentiator for something in that role. Yeah, and that you know, obviously, we were, I mentioned in the previous question, but then what what were the you know whether you're talking about data analytics outside of the DTC and outside communication mm-hmm. kind of, as you were growing in your role at the WWE or as it was evolving, what were the kind of metrics and what were the types of places where you were using data and insights to help uh, build the business? Yeah, you know, it's it's really a good question. I think where we tried to get and where I think we did a pretty successful job was actually integrating and having a mindset that was um, very, very integrated and, and very holistic. And what I mean by that is that, you know, similar to most sports companies, similar to most entertainment companies, the content and the IP was at the center of the brand. The brand itself and the product that was made was at the middle. And there were a lot of spokes in the wheel of how that could be monetized. And what I think we quickly learned as an organization was to not get siloed by the spokes of the monetization. I feel like a lot of organizations kind of fall into that trap. And they really do a great job of getting deep into content valuation or consumer products or ticketing or DTC or anything else, but fail to really link those different spokes together. And that's really where the power of um, you know the analytics and the power of the metrics comes into play. And, you know, one example that we had of that was I remember we were looking to route a live event tour in whatever year post our network launch. And we were looking to go into South America and we wanted to go into South America because we had seen some signs in the data, some signs from our social and digital traffic that said there's opportunity here. Like there's opportunity to do some events. We haven't tapped into this a while. and We're seeing some real heat. So we looked at it and we said, hey, there's really an opportunity in these countries in South America to go play and have a you know a productive tour. And at first we didn't believe it. Like, listen, we don't have an office down there. We don't you know specifically target Santiago, Chile, but okay. So we went back and we pulled more data. And actually, you know, we pulled some of our um, DTC data out that was looking at subscribership and streams. And then we coupled that with television. We started to do a little some of the parts analysis and said, yeah, there's opportunity here. And, you know, back to your earlier question about, you know, how did you get the organization oriented around analytics? Well, we took that up and put the narrative to it and said, hey, we see all these indicators in this area that look a lot like the indicators in the markets where we know we have success. We should go around a tour there. And it is part of a broader strategy. You know, short story long, we we did that. Um, went on sale in Santiago, Chile, sold out the first event in 24 hours, came back and said, hey, why don't we do a second night? Sold that one out in 48 hours. And it, it was a great success. And it was all because, you know, we had the purview and we had the vision to really link together all these different silos, say what's the sum of the parts and how do we make a business. 
Yeah, and that's a, that's a question that we talk about a little bit in the class and I talk about in, in the book that we have for the class, but it is this intersection of live events and media consumption. Sometimes people think those are in contrast, right? If you're mm-hmm. focusing on live events, you can't necessarily build out the media business and vice versa. If we're focused on D2C and make it as easy as yeah. fans as possible to consume content at home, they may not come to live events. It's interesting you said looking at all the spokes of the wheel. So how you know, whether in your current role or, or at WWE, how did you think about that? And did you think of those, you know, it sounds like you thought it saw them as an integrated package, not necessarily separate components. Yeah, we really did. And I think you, you can even see the language, particularly at WWE, because we got to see more of the life cycle of it there, where you could see the transition, even in the investor materials, where, you know, by the end of my tenure there, we were really, um, you know, communicating WWE is an integrated media company. And, you know, that meant everything. And we were communicating that to the street and that meant everything that you just said, right? There's an interplay between the content, between the live event, between the experiential element that you can create by providing access into the talent and into the shows, et cetera. And, you know, ultimately, you know, what I think we, um, what we really adopted and understood was that as we made that transition into an integrated media company, there was a, there was a, there was a certain point in time where, you know, we went from producing content at an event to get people to the event, to doing the event, to produce content so right. people could engage with it. And that's when the paradigm flipped. And, you know, for us, that's when it really became the media organization. We kind of inverted that funnel and said, you know, the content is where it's at. The con, you know, more people will consume the content and you will get more insight into that fan base than will ever attend a live event. Um, now, your other point was also an interesting one about the cannibalization and the concept of, hey, is there cannibalization because the content gets so good? Um, we didn't find that. You know, I, I, I think that, you know, we live in a society, you know, post-COVID, I'll put the last few years behind us, where people appreciate the experiential element of any brand. And I think you see a lot of brands out there now that are really trying to focus on that as a differentiator, not just be a live event, not just be content, but to really emphasize the experiential element in attracting the new fan base. And when done right, it's that there's actually a synergy, right? There is a synergy between the two. And as you go forward and you start looking at all the new digital capabilities we have, you start thinking metaverse, you start thinking, you know, the next 10 years, it's only going to increase. So I think, you know, having that mindset of these create a synergy which is a great experience for your fan, putting the fan at the center, you know, that that's the right lens to look at the future group. Yeah. And that builds into the next question, which is, you know, now that you transition one kind of talking about more about your role at MLB, but two, how are you thinking about those kind of things that you just talked about, whether new technologies, the integration of live experiences, the integration mm-hmm. in a post COVID world, how, how are you thinking about that in your current role? Sure. So, um, you know, send back for a second. Yeah, in the current role, um, you know, I've fortunately come into an organization that, you know, has a lot of support and backing for the organization I'm standing up, which is fantastic. And, you know, I always tell everybody MLB had been strategic. MLB had been, you know, thoughtful and analytical way before I got here. Um, we're just centralizing it, right? So within my organization, we do a few things and it's bringing together all these pieces that, you know, provide a synergy and provide an ability to navigate the future, which is we have a strategy organization, um, which helps define what the long-term strategy is, as well as address individual initiatives as they come up. We have, uh, 
a club services element, which is very focused on, you know, providing services out to the clubs and making sure that the club perspective is engaged and injected into our strategies. Um, we have a corp dev arm, we have a PMO arm, so we can go from slides to actually implementing change across the league. And then we also have analytics. And, you know, I say the data, data analytics component is really the foundation for a lot of what we do, provides the empirical insight. And, you know, we're building the muscle across all these different areas. Um, you know, as we look to the future here, I think that, you know, it, it, we're so well positioned is a league to leverage all the inherent assets that we have to, you know, serve as a platform for engaging the fans. 162 games a year on, you know, virtually unlimited content, 30 clubs. We have such great access to the fans. We have such great access to the consumers. We have a history of investing in digital. We had, um, you know, a history of, you know, focusing on fan data and leveraging that to drive decisions. I feel like we're extremely, you know, well positioned uh, to take advantage of a lot of the things that we have in the future, particularly around content consumption. Um, you've seen a lot of the things we've already done with our moves into crypto, with our moves into sports betting. And I would say, you know, I really have to credit, you know, the leadership at the league and at the clubs for staying cutting edge and on the front of these things and really, you know, getting out ahead and, capturing the next trends because, you know, how we engage the fans of the future um, is going to be a lot different. It's, there's a lot more opportunity out there. You know, about digital transformation. Um, there's that, you know, when you talk about the impact on the live event experience, there's so many more opportunities, so many more assets that we can leverage to engage a fan now that we've never had before, right? You can think on digital platforms, you have unlimited shelf space, to create content. You have unlimited ways to, you know, cut up that content to target your fan. Um, it's it's just opening up possibilities that really only starting to explore. So, you know, I'm really heartened by where we are. Um, I know the league is very, very focused on this as are all the clubs and, you know, it's going to be exciting 10 years for us. Yeah, I'd be remiss not to ask, you mentioned how data insights and analytics are providing an anchor for the other areas that you talked about, uh, obviously, given the background, my background and the background of the class, can you provide more detail, particularly on the emerging trends? You also mentioned like uh, whether that's crypto or some of the emerging technologies, how are you leveraging um, data technology or data analytics and um, insights to help with those strategic decision-making processes? Yeah. You know, it, it's a great question. I think ultimately, you know, what we want to leverage the data as is, you know, the foundation for um, a lot of the strategic decisions that we're going to have to make. And having that first party fan data where we have the ability to understand what the experience that they currently have is, what the current or what the experience that they want to have is, is absolutely invaluable, right? When you come into a ballpark, before you come into a ballpark, we want to know you know, how you bought, how you engage, where you engage, how you access and evolve. How can we do this better, right? How can we create the best experience possible for the fans in the park? And that's one touch point. You know, I think that having a strong analytics team ultimately allows us to really work with marketing, work with the product teams to really build a fan platform, which says, regardless of your on-ramps to the brand, we're going to be able to understand, right, how to increase stickiness. We're going to be able to... Um, really understand how to get one more piece of engagement. And, you know, a good example of that is, you know, an initiative that we have to actually really focus on predictive content, predictive capabilities in a lot of our products. So when you watch MLB TV, 
we want to be able to predict and automatically serve you the piece of content that you want to watch. When you're on .com, we want to be able to serve you the article before you have to go search for anything, right? We want to be able to um, eventually down the road, again, when content continues to be fragmented, we want to be able to serve you an alert that says, hey, this highlight is about to happen, right? We're in, you know, two outs in the bottom of the ninth and the score is tied and, you know, uh, Aaron Judge is up to bat. You're going to want to, you're going to want to check this out. Um, that, that's really how we're thinking about it is how do we take not just the ballpark, which is a huge part of our industry, but how do we take all the fan experiences and understand what the consumer wants and how do we get predictive and give them that next level of engagement? really to keep them in the flywheel, keep them engaged with the brand. Um, so that's, that's a big focus for us right now. Yeah. I think that may be in and of itself, a whole podcast about using. Yeah. <laughs> uh, maybe we can have you back on to talk about that once it gets more fully fleshed out. But one of the things that I did also want to follow up in your initial description is you mentioned the clubs and obviously WWE yeah. was operates more like a single entity structure where obviously MLB has to serve, you know, many multiple different franchises. So can you talk about how, particularly in terms of all the stuff you were just talking about, whether it's predictive analytics or technology or data, how does, you know, how has your job changed and how is it to interact with multiple different clubs, uh, particularly with these complex concepts? Sure. Um, you know, I used to <laughs> you say, yeah, I had, had one boss before, now I have 30, um, or 31. But, um, but honestly, you know, I, I think the they both have... Um, obviously very different structures. As you said, WWE, much more of a closed ecosystem, a different relationship with the talent, um, you know, but doesn't own the venues, right? There's a lot, there's a lot of touch points where they're actually leveraging somebody else's asset, not the same for MLB, right? 30 clubs, more distributed, um, clubs generally owning, right? The ballpark. Um, so I feel like there's a, a great opportunity to leverage, you know, those 30 touch points as opportunities to kind of experiment and, you know, and to see what really works to engage the fans. And, you know, that's, that's the great thing is that on any individual night, we have so many touch points with the fans going on that it, as you can imagine, throws off treasure troves of data, um, which again, you know, and in a lot of ways come back to the analytics team, and our ability to work with the clubs to, to siphon through that and, and to find what the next opportunities are. Um, so it's, it's really a unique relationship. I think it gives us, you know, the, the clubs that we've been dealing with extremely sophisticated, extremely smart, extremely, um, in tune with the market trends, all looking to push the envelope, all looking to get more digital, all looking to reestablish, you know, the, the relationship that they have with the fans, um, which makes a really good, you know, ultimately good relationship here with the league. Um, it, it's great that they're out in front looking to push these things and, you know, gives, again, opportunity for us to, to test some things and see what works and what it does. And we can take it inside, ingest it, and roll it out at scale. Yeah, and it's that, that, you know, you, and I want to come back to this one point about from the predictive side, which is you're talking about uh, – you know, whether it's crypto, blockchain, NFTs, new technology, not necessarily specific or even crypto exchanges, not specifically those technologies. But when you're talking about it from a predictive perspective, how do you, you know, you talk about A-B tests or versions of testing and different products. How do you think about it? How What's like the strategic framework, at least at a high level of how you think about emerging technologies and think about, you know, emerging technologies, emerging markets and potentially the intersection of all those things, which I know is a broad question, but I think that's the idea is that, are you using frameworks to think about those things as they're coming online? You know, it's, it's a great question because, um, you know, there's, there's 
so many interesting buzzwords. There's so many interesting trends. There's so many things. There's so much value being created in so many different areas, particularly in the digital space right now, that we have to remember who's at the center of this and it's the fan. Right. And, you know, for, for me, part of my role and part of what we try to do and the way we think about this is it's a combination of being opportunistic and very, um, you know, prescriptive in how we approach things at the same time. And what I mean by that is, you know, part of the role that we have is to try to understand, you know, what is, what's the ecosystem view, right? And you talk, even go back to something that's, you know, very, very germane to people. You talk about the DTC transformation. Um, that was in and of itself, when you step back and look at it, it's one way to engage the fan with a piece of content. And the byproducts of that are engagement, monetization, yeah. and growing a new fan base, right? And that's, that's essentially the structure that we try to look at all these new opportunities through. And we try to have, you know, a broader picture that says, what is our longer term objective? What are we really trying to do? Are we trying to grow a fan base in certain ways? How do we think we can best do that? What is this new asset? How does it plug in? What should we not do today? What, you know, what should we not do to make sure we're not painting ourselves into a corner and limiting our optionality of the future and while still being out in front and still monetizing. So there's always a tension. There's always a tension between the two. And I think, you know, too much of one side or the other isn't isn't healthy and where you want to be, but that's part of the role that we have, right? And I know that's a, a sort of a high level answer to this, but again, it all comes back to what, you know, what are your principles, what are your objectives and how do you use any of these new emerging trends as assets to ultimately achieve the bigger objectives? Yeah, and I think that actually is a good summary of first, for lack of a term, first principles, right? Monetization, engagement, mm-hmm. growth. Like I think that's yeah. a pretty good, yeah. <laughs> it's a pretty yeah. good summary of the metrics you want to look at when you're looking at these technologies. Um, one question, and we're getting towards the end of the session, but uh, of the end of the podcast, but mm-hmm. uh, a couple of questions we like to ask all of our guests, particularly now, is um, sure. obviously with COVID, coronavirus, it's not, you know, one of the things that we like to ask our guests and not necessarily the specific tactical things to deal with that, that the league or the WWE mm-hmm. had to face, but kind of, do you see trends or do you see um, best practices or do you see something that would emerge from COVID that was implemented because of COVID or because uh, of the impact of COVID that you think could have a long-term, medium or long-term impact on the industry more generally? Sure. You know, there, there's honestly been so many um, you know, it, it's often difficult to go back and triage one, but I think, you know, a few things do stand out. I think that it's really, um, you'll probably see a bigger migration to a better and deeper understanding of who's in your ballpark, yeah. right? On any given night, if we have 40,000 of our closest friends in the ballpark, we, we'd love to know everybody by name, right? Um, that's, that's good for the industry, it's good for the fans. Um, again, it helps deepen the relationship, create loyalty, and just ultimately, you know, to the point about COVID, have a better understanding of the coming goals that we've been there. Um, you know, I think the other thing that we saw, and I will, you know, turn back to WWE as an example here, because that's where I was throughout the majority of the pandemic. Um, a, lot of, a lot of innovation. Right. A lot of um, you, just, you you saw a big turn toward doing new things. And, and everybody talks about the acceleration of existing trends. But, you know, WWE did a great job of making a live audience when we couldn't have a live audience. Right. And if anybody wanted to go rewind and go watch Smackdown or Raw and look at the Thunderdome, um, a great job of bringing in, you know, um, uh, bring in screens and bring in new technologies to create an audience. 
And, you know, I feel like it really provided, you know, an ability and a justification to companies say, yeah, you can, you, you really can move quick. <laughs> a lot of these things, you can lot yeah. of new technologies to do things that are core to your business. Um, so that's, that's a few, I mean, those are a few thoughts that we have. And I would say that, you know, going forward, particularly at MLB enhanced um, security, enhanced safety, enhanced, you know, understanding of new technologies like cashless payments, um, yeah. New things like, hey, continuing to scan in via the ballpark app. I believe this year we had um, about 30% of people that came back into the ballpark actually scanned in digitally through the app, which was, you know, fantastic and going in the right direction. So, again, I think COVID accelerated a lot of those things. They're ultimately going to make the experience better, make access easier, and, um, you know, just enhance the overall experience for everyone at the game. Yeah, actually, before we jump to the last question, the innovation question and the speed of innovation, obviously, like you said, your background starting in from a, an entrepreneurial startup environment, obviously, that was something I did as well. But the question for you is, do you, you mentioned that you think the speed of innovation maybe has accelerated thanks to COVID and the organizations recognizing they can move more quickly. That is, you know, do you see that? Again, it's hard, obviously, to predict. Uh, particularly about the future, as Yogi Bear would say, but like, do you see that as like a a long-term sustainable trend where companies are going to be more willing or larger sports organizations are going to be more willing to speed up the innovation cycle because and more willing to test things because they were able to do that successfully um, during COVID? Yeah. And, you know, whether, you know, I'm sure, again, to your point, COVID brought on a lot of this. Um, yeah. I, I can't take credit for the saying, but, you know, I heard it and it really resonated with me, which is, you know, um, the world will never be as simple and slow as it is today. Um, <laughs> it's just a reality that we're all facing. So, you know, so how do you deal with that? You know, how do you deal with that? Well, you make investments in, you know, your your technology arm. You make investments in understanding your fan, really, really to try to be ahead of these things. You make investments in, you know, building sensing capabilities to understand what is the next thing and the next thing beyond that. Um, you try to make investments in a management team and in a strategy organization that says, hey, I know we're dealing with a cloud of smoke and dust right now, but what happens when all that dust settles, right? Yeah. What, what's the fan going to want when consumption is now 90% digital instead of wherever it is today? Um, you know, and um, ultimately, to your point, it comes back to first principles, right? Um, have a good have a good structure to be able to filter all these new opportunities through that are coming at you faster than ever and try to get the litmus, right? Because you'd be making more decisions with less perfect information than ever before. So, right? so if engagement and monetization and reach are key, great. Codify it, indoctrinate yourself with it, make it a language, and then hold it up and make decisions. So it's a fun time. It's a fun time to be in these roles. That's for sure. Yeah. Um, and our last question, which is a question we ask, like, again, ask all our guests is, you know, you're in a senior management role. A lot of our students are looking to break into or enter the sports industry. From your perspective, what are qualities that you are looking for candidates who are looking to potentially, um, you know, work on, on your team or work or looking to get into the sports industry? What would you find from a management perspective or things and traits that you would be looking for for candidates as they're applying for roles on your team? Sure. Um, it, it's really a good question. I think, um, you know, a, a few thoughts on that. I would say when I look to hire for my team as, as we continue to build out our strategy and development organization here, you know, I look for people who are high EQ and low ego. 
And, you know, what do I mean by that? I mean, they have, you know, the, the analytical capabilities, the intelligence, the empirical capabilities, the drive, all of the, like, that's the bar, right? Where we, we'd be having a conversation because yes, you bring all those things. Um, what's the differentiator? You know, the ability to apply that, the ability to collaborate. I think I, you hear it, it's so overused and I can't stress it enough. Um, you know, the organizational design of these companies is running away from silos, right? right. It yeah. is more integrated, more cross-functional than ever. Listen, the, the first two thirds of our podcast were about that, right? How do you have, what's the integration between live events and, and content? And how do you pick where to go to the live event based on all these, it's not silo, right? The ability to influence, the ability to communicate, the ability to be um, a trusted good citizen in your organization, critical, absolutely critical. Um, low, so that's the high EQ part. The low ego part, I think, is goes back to the conversation we had on the rate and pace of change within organizations, that there's going to be times where you work on something and awesome, you're presenting to the COO. There's other times when you work on something and we happen to be on the road and the conversation comes up and you're not there. Great. The bigger picture is everything moving forward, right? Um, and having the ego to accept, okay, we're going to wear a lot of hats. We're going to play a lot of roles. Um, and we're going to be very broad in what we do um, is, is are really the differentiator. So if I had, you know, the, the advice that I would give is, you know, make sure you're, um, make sure you're prepared and ready for that. Because I think that that's increasingly what folks are going to be looking for in the future in terms of the attributes of, you know, of who they want to bring on board. Yeah, I think that's um, one thing I, I bring up in the class is the idea of the, the super forecaster, or at least the concept that was popularized in the super forecaster book, which is, you know, having strongly strong beliefs weekly held, right? It's the idea that you vociferously, but you are able to interact, yeah, yeah. Talk, you're able to communicate your ideas and make changes based on what people are talking about. But also, like you're saying, like, in order to do that, you have to have a strong EQ, you have to be able to interact with people, you have to combine numbers and narrative and, and be able to, to really um you know, have empathy for like a better term, like understand where people are coming from so you can deliver yeah. and, and, and results. Yeah. Uh, yeah well, yeah. go ahead. Well, I was going to say, yeah, absolutely correct. And, you know, your, your statement there made me laugh because I had a former uh, boss of mine who used to say the same thing all the time, who yeah. was, you know, absolutely strong beliefs and a new piece of information would come up and yeah. there's a 180 to end, but it's a sign of a, uh, they say it's a sign of an active, intelligent mind. So I couldn't agree with that more Ed. Yeah. And I always get to end on agreement. So there we go. <laughs> uh, yeah, Brian, thanks for, for joining the podcast. Really appreciate insights. And I know the students and our audience will get a lot out of the conversation. Awesome. Thank you very much for having me, Adam.